Welcome to episode 282 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. You know, just over a year ago, I celebrated my birthday. It was a milestone birthday, and I had some big plans that obviously had to be cancelled. At the time, I thought, well, it'll all be worth it because we'll take care of this thing quickly and it'll all be over by the fall and then I can look at revisiting those plans. Of course, that didn't happen. And it's been a year now of plans postponed, uncertainty and wondering when it will all end. And for a lot of us in the theater industry, we've been wondering big questions. Questions like, do we even have careers anymore? Or is it worth staying in the city while all this is going on? Or do we go somewhere else? And will we be able to find a place to live when we come back? If we come back. And what about when this is all over? What will theater even look like? In the coming weeks, I am going to examine some of these big questions. I'm going to talk to people who are struggling with their theater careers and wondering what to do. I'm going to talk to people who live where theaters have been opening back up and talk about what that looks like. And I'm going to have a live roundtable discussion about theater and how to come back from all the shutdowns. I want to talk about the future because I think it's important that we start to think about the return of theater. And not just a return to the status quo, but how to make our theater industry better. So watch for those conversations in the coming weeks. If you've enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. If you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings and reviews help new people find this show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, please tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 282 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Calgary-based playwright and performer Kaylee Crow. When you're not, when you're not um, uh, uh, obsessing and listening to to podcasts about scammers, what's your what are you what are you doing? Um, I'm I'm freelancing in theater right now, so I'm doing you know I have like six or seven jobs that I cobble together and, and call a career. Um, the the thing that's sort of holding me down right now is in a good way is um, this job I have with Making Treaty Seven Cultural Society here in Calgary. Um, really awesome uh, indigenous theater company that has been working here in Calgary since 2013. And I, I just started with them in January. So um, there's new leadership there and we're all kind of um, like embarking on this journey together to like figure out what our vision is for the, for the company. And by our vision, I mean, you know, our artistic director's vision, but it's, it's really wonderful to be a part of these conversations and, and see what goes into 
those decisions. Now, with new leadership, there must be um, a lot of conversation. Like the leader has to make their choice about about how it's going to look. So, it's great that they're involving other people. But what is that? What does that look like so far? Like, yeah, I mean the. Um... The new artistic director came in like last June, so they had some things already going when I came on board. Um, the big one is um, this workshop series called Estotzi that ran from uh, March, or sorry, just ended here last Saturday and started um, at the beginning of February. So February to March, every week we had like a um, a guest artist from previous iterations of the show come in and run a little workshop, but. Um, mm seems like a lot of it is it's really I think artistic is a good adjective to put towards like before that word because it seems like uh, Michelle Thrush who's the AD here like is able to just dream and like she will, will come into an, our staff meeting and will literally be like you know I had a dream about <laughs> this and uh, I think that we should really try and, and accomplish this um, huh. or you know um, she's had such a, like a long, um, and, you know, storied career in Canada. So she's had touched like many communities across the country and she picks up little things and she'll be like, I worked on this project like 15 years ago that had this like nugget of an idea that I've been carrying in my back pocket since then. And I think making treaty seven is a good place to like plant that seed, like stuff like that. So it's really like, um, yeah, it's really interesting to watch that process. I always find it fascinating about theater artists how generally, you know, we learn things just for each particular project. Mm. And so we become these like repositories of knowledge of like, I learned this. I learned how to ride a horse for this one show. Yeah. I studied this this strange subject for another show. And these things all go in, they mix up into our mind. And then one day we're like, here's an idea for a show that mixes all of these things I studied. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, I guess theater is great at creating little worlds, right? So you can mm. have, um, I don't know, I, I, I'm writing a play right now where I, I know I want there to be a scene that takes place in like a 1940s newsroom because I just love the, like the banter, the pitter patter and the got to get the scoop, you know, like, I just want to write that. <laughs> and like with theater, you, and writing and performing, whatever you're doing in theater, you get to like really build that world from whatever yeah. little piece of inspiration that grabs you. What is it? I mean, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about, about that, that, that banter, that, that 1940s, you know, the, the quick banter that you always see in the movies. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that that just feels so snappy. Mm -hmm. Is was there something in particular that, 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 that you heard that grabbed you or just like, just like the image of the whole thing is, 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 is what you're digging? Well, a couple of years ago, I saw that Cary Grant movie, um, His Girl Friday and mm. like on a random date. So this would be more than, this must be like six years ago. Anyway, I love that mm. movie. Um, and I just, it seemed like a play like I know, I think there have been some companies, theater companies that have done a play version of that movie. Um, but just like, yeah, I just thought it was just so, it's so specific, right? To that time and place that mm -hmm. like, and so evocative, um, the urgency, the like, w there's like a weird 
humanitarian aspect to journalism that I find quite fascinating because it's wrapped up, you know, modern day journalism anyway, for sure, is wrapped up in a bunch of other political and capitalist, you know, traps and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's hard. It's, I think it's hard to explain inspiration sometimes they just grab you but i think yeah, yeah no, the true. urgency i really love the like the urgency that that i got from that film which was like we gotta solve this mystery and only well, we can also do something it. about there's something about that there's like a physical deadline like you've got to get the story done before the before it goes to press and it goes to press at this time yeah. and if you don't have it that story is dead you know yeah it's exactly like there's this whole like thing yeah it's, it's great it's, yeah, I think that we don't spend enough time looking back at some older like 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 you say, like the, his girl Friday uh, is, you know, it feels like a play. And that's something about this, the way that they were shooting films mm -hmm. at the time. And we can look back at like all of these old films, even back into the silent era and see these things that that will just blow our minds that these are things that 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 they were doing. And the limitations that they were working with, and yet still creating these amazing things, and it feels like something that that the today would be innovative if you did that, but mm -hmm. it was done like a hundred years ago. Yeah, it's it's funny how it like circles back around where like what was kind of done out of just necessity and available resources. Um, so many advances get made that then you like going back you know so to speak to the roots is like you know a strong aesthetic choice right <laughs> and not just like the tools that you have around yeah yeah now i saw a, a, a sort of a little bio that described you as a uh, a playwright and a performer is that how is that one of the is that is that how you describe yourself or are there more uh, commas in 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 the way that you describe yourself as an artist yeah, I, I usually throw a musician in there too. Um, <laughs> so it's usually, yeah, playwright, musician, performer. Performer covers musician though. I, I'm, I, I think that probably was something I said about myself. Because um, performer, I, I don't do a ton of acting, not in my own work. And so I feel like actor doesn't fully sort of encapsulate the work I do with my theater company. Um, but performer seems more right, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I play in a band. It, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, there's, it's funny. Cause you know, I talk to, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people, but the number of people who, who have described themselves as performer rather than actor, um, is, is on the increase. And I feel like it's people who create their own work, who are describing themselves as performers mm -hmm. over just an actor. There's something about the, I am engaged in the act of creation that is that sets apart from from quote unquote just an actor. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um I think a lot of uh art artistic people I I think young people generally can't just have one one you know marketable skill anymore. Mm. I think um everybody's diversifying everything and commodifying every hobby to within an inch of its life you know and for reasons i totally yeah. understand you know um it's, it's survival out here man you got to do what you got to do but um 
yeah, that's that's sort of why I I switched to performer was I was doing mostly like festival shows mm-hmm. where I would be yeah creating that piece. Um, I don't usually do solo performances, so creating mm-hmm. it with other people or um, as well as performing in it. So mm-hmm. it's interesting though because I I've found you know and for myself I I've added many different uh, hyphens and, and commas over the years and. The thing that I've that I've noticed that's changed is when I was in theater way back in in the the the, the olden days, um, it was that we were basically told, "Don't ever admit to doing anything other than theater." Right. Don't put anything else in your title. Don't admit to doing anything else. It you know nobody will take you seriously if you're not just an actor. If you're not like an actor mm. singularly focused, but that doesn't hold so much today. We're at, to have a career in in the theater today means having to do many different things mm-hmm. and i think there's that that's been a fundamental shift in in the scene is that is that now it's it's really rare for somebody to just to to say i'm an actor and that's the end of the sentence there's usually mm-hmm. so much more involved in that yeah that that rings true for me definitely now, one of the things that I noticed I saw in this in this bio is that is that you were researching the magnetosphere. Yeah. So what <laughs> what is it that, that that grabbed you about the magnetosphere? Okay. Um, so uh, that is just um, you know sometimes you smoke the good stuff and the good stuff makes you think about things in a new way. And one night I just was curious about like how exactly magnets work and how is it that one physical object made of matter can affect matter that it's not touching and it also mm. is not it's not like radiating energy onto how does how does that exactly work uh when on wikipedia and the wikipedia page for magnetism which is quite long there's a lot in there um and i was quite surprised to find out that like this is still a very big question in science is how do magnets work? Um, So I'm not alone in asking that question. And Mm. there's actually quite a lot of very, very smart, highly educated scientists who are looking into this right now. So we've got good people on it. Don't worry. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah. And I, and I just, uh, the, the the magnetosphere, I mean, it's got magneto in it, which is, Ah you know, tells you where my loyalties lie in the X-Men fandom. I um, do. I do. I respect that. I respect that. <laughs> Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is always the cool, coolest mutants. I mean, I think, you know, it's, I think we need both approaches. I think we need the Magneto. We need the Professor X's. But, you know, on recruitment day, I think I'm going with Magneto, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, anyway, I just like, yeah, I was just, I saw this beautiful and like animated gif of like you know an artist's rendering of what the magnetosphere looks like and it's just so beautiful and flowing Mm. and like this is hard science but it to me just seemed like i don't know it just seemed like there's you know there's all kinds of invisible forces that connect us all this is this is true we know we know that we're all related in some way and and you know i just dove right into the research and, and, um, yeah, 
that that play is the same play that's going to have the 1940s newspaper room scene. <laughs> that that play is is holding a lot of stuff in it. Yeah, I, I want it to be like almost like a cycle. Like maybe there's four 15 minute plays in this play that take Ooh. place. One is one's in 1859, 1940s, and then I have a scene written in in 2335 as well. So I need one more. One more to round it <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. I think sometimes looking back at where we've been is is kind of fascinating uh, uh, to me. And to look at like you look at the forties, and that's a particular thing because you've got that whole like forty five onwards. It's that post war boom thing, and you look at that period between um, between World War One and World War Two, and there's so much going on. Mm-hmm. And it, there's like awesome, like I think there's so much fascinating stuff in all of those, all of those eras. And I'm really partial to a lot of the clothes from those periods. Absolutely, as well. Yes. I would 100 <laughs> percent if I could afford it, do nothing but wear clothes from those periods. I I love clothes. I love, I love clothes from all all eras. Every I I say this about every decade. There's something something in every decade that I think is like so cool a style or a, a hat like i do mm. i i think i'm i miss the hats and gloves mm. <laughs> i think there's some like slightly sexist reasons why the hats and gloves were a thing but i think i think we could reclaim it in an interesting way <laughs> i fully agree i i i love a good hat and i think it's you 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 usually you have to go to like that that one store Mm-hmm. It's like it just exists in like this one spot mm-hmm. in your in in the town that you live in, and it's like this dusty old place or something like that. And you can buy like hats. They have they're the only place in in like their area that still has a haberdasher who's making hats or something. It's, <laughs> it's like this this lost art. Yeah, absolutely. I, I went into a, that hat store uh, here in Calgary, and they are very eager to sell you a hat. It's um it's it's amazing. There's all, there is still all kinds and there's Mm. like, um, there's, there seemed to be a real, a real drive for these people to sell me a hat. I mean, Mm. uh, the hats I want are far too expensive for my budget currently, but Mm. one day, one day, I always, (laughs) it's always tough to have that kind of taste in, in any of Yes. Well, I'm always threatening to felt one out of my cat's fur from the vacuum cleaner so we'll see I maybe mean, one probably day probably enough of it <laughs> exactly the only place i've ever been that had an abundance of hat shops was new orleans okay and there were so many hat shops that i came and massive hat shops um, yes interesting so if you ever get to go there plant by a hat okay yeah i i never have been there i will keep that in mind yes <laughs> um <clears throat> now one of the things that I like to to talk about is um, a person's theater origin story. We were talking about X-Men and all the X-Men have their, you know, all the superheroes, they have their origin story. But I think it's interesting to think of, of theater performers and theater makers as having origin stories. So how would you tell your origin story? Mm. Okay. Um, I'm in grade six. I go to a French immersion elementary school in Northeast Calgary, and I am not that great at school. 
I am not very good at math. Uh, I'm left-handed. My penmanship is poor. I have low organizational skills. Um, but I am, but I have, you know, decent amount of friends. So I quite enjoy school, even though I'm not good at stuff in it. My grade six teacher was, um, a really awesome teacher, um, named Mr. Dornan, who introduced me to drama class. He, Fridays were the best day in grade six. It was like, um, he would, we would do music, we would do art, we would do drama. And he set up like an hour of like chit chat, chatting through world and life problems as a class hour. So Friday was the best. And that was when I first was introduced to drama class and improv. And I just took to it like, like a fish in water. Like I just finally felt like there was something that I was good at, you know, and I, I, I could just get up there and, and make the other kids laugh and like take on these crazy accents and, you know, do like the old lady voice and do like a duck voice. And these were good things in this context and not distractions <laughs> mm. as in other contexts. Um, so like, then I was just was like, mom, I got to take improv class. I got to go to drama camp in the summer. Like I'm taking this all through junior high, high schools is what I want to do. Um, and then that's, then it just went from there, but I really owe it to that one grade six teacher. Do you remember a point where it sort of struck you that this was a, like a vocation? This was a thing that you could grow up and do. I don't know. I don't, I, 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 I don't remember a specific moment. I think, um, I don't know. I, I, I did go to a really good amount of theater when I was a kid. My mom was mm. very, mm. Um, she, you know, she came from sort of pretty humble beginnings mm. and lived the sort of Alberta dream of getting an awesome accounting job at a, in ONG. And mm. so, you know, was definitely going to take me and my brother to theater and to um, put us in piano lessons and swim and all that. So mm. I had a really awesome childhood that did involve a lot of art and art and extracurriculars. And I think my mom just wanted us to find something we were interested in. So, mm. yeah. So then once I started taking drama and stuff in junior high, I thought I, there were, I did try to be a teacher. I'll, disclaimer oh. <laughs> i did make the attempt <laughs> now did you go through teachers college or did you like yeah. like what do you mean you have made the attempt i i have a, a ba in drama and i have a b ed uh that i got from the u of a and i spent about five years um subbing and doing a little bit of teaching i i own i was a substitute teacher in canada and i had my own classroom for like a maternity leave in england huh. and that was my that was my attempt. <laughs> I, I and when you called it an attempt, like what was it that made you decide that, well, that's, that's the end of that? Um, it, I, I moved to Montreal with, with my husband and uh, because of the bureaucracy out there, I couldn't actually apply for my teacher's license until I was physically in the province. So then it takes right. time to turn around that paperwork. In that time, I got a job working for the Quebec Drama Federation mm. as a marketing communications coordinator. And I was doing a lot of blogging and, and interviewing 
artists in town to like do sort of promotion for the membership. And I just said to my husband, like, I'm going to be really sad when I have to quit this job and go back to teaching. He was like, do you hear yourself? Yeah. (laughs) Do you hear what you just said? Like who is forcing you to do that? You know, Um, I just, I just honestly didn't have thick enough skin. Like I I just couldn't, I, I, I was, 22 years old when I finished university and and 26 when I, you're 27 or whatever, when I quit teaching, I was like, subbing was, was really hard, but I just, I, I realized I had, these kids had to like me. Like there was something in me that was like, if these kids don't like me, it's the end of the world. And mm-hmm. I was like that, this can't work with that yeah, going on inside me, you know, <laughs> like probably not the the best way to be a teacher. No, no. And, and I was becoming super like, I was like, well, if they're not going to like me, then they're going to definitely like follow my rules and be good kids then. And so then I was becoming ah. this like really mean, strict kind of defensive person that I just, mm-hmm. I, I, it was no good for anybody. Like, and I was trying to, when I was subbing, I was trying to get a job, like a teaching job in a classroom and I did interview after interview and it was just going nowhere, you know? So, um, I just was like, I think this is for the best for everyone involved. (laughs) Now, what was it after spending all of this time, like feeling like, like theater was your thing? Why did you do, why did you become a teacher? Um, I think, um, I have a lot of teachers in my family. I think, um, so it was always sort of like, oh, you're into drama. You want to be a drama teacher was sort of like the first question. And it was like, well, I guess, you know, I can always try that. I can always have that as like my, you know, in my back pocket or whatever, or that can be my, you know, what's, what pays my bills. And then in my summer time off or whatever, I'll I'll do some theater. Um, But honestly, the real honest truth was I, I was scared to commit to being in theater like I was really scared to um to fail at theater Mm. um and assumed that I would not fail at teaching so then (laughs) surprise (laughs) I failed at teaching instead Mm. and so then you know it 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 was it was like a it was definitely an insecurity thing for me where I thought this will be my safety zone Mm. um but like it had to happen that way like I really feel like I had to go through all of that to really get comfortable with being vulnerable generally. I've had mm. a lot of walls up like mm. in my twenties. Um, I just like was really closed off and didn't want anyone to like really look at me that much, you know? Mm. So um, had to, had to go on and uh, get over that. <laughs> mm. Because it's really, I mean, even, even having gone through theater school, um, when I did, um, I spent several years, I mean, the fear of failing was, was really huge. Um, I know, like, I look back at, at how I, how I started out and how I pursued acting in, in, in those days, in those early years of my, my acting career. And I know that I didn't put everything into it that I should have, mm-hmm. um, out of fear of failing. There were all kinds of things I didn't do because I worried about failing at it. Mm -hmm. And that's number one, fear is no way to be creative. And 
when you're afraid, you're closed off and you 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 can't open up, which is not what what the business and what the the craft needs. Um, and so I I think in some ways I had to go through that. I had to you know eventually burn out and take five years away from it to learn how important it was to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like for you, like you had to try to do something to something else to really realize what the arts meant to you. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and and just to be like, okay, well, you know, you already failed at the thing that you don't really want to be doing. So what, Mm. like, is it going to do to you to fail at the thing that you actually really want to do? You know, like, and and my life didn't end, you know, like no one Mm. was injured. I wasn't thrown in jail. (laughs) I like, there was no big catastrophe or anything. Right. Mm. So it's like, and I picked myself up. I got the job at QDF, you know, like that little bit of, of confidence really took me super far. Um, Mm. so yeah, I think you do. That's just growth, right? There's those periods of struggle where you're like, why is this happening to me? And then, you know, (laughs) five or 10 or 30 years later, you're like, oh, that's why. I had to learn something there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I I often think about how when I was in theater school, our head of acting would say things like, some of the things I'm saying to you are not going to make sense to you today. But one day in the future, you will suddenly realize what it all meant. And at the time, I thought, listen, old man, why don't you just tell us what you mean? (laughs) And then, like, you know, I'm going through life and, like, at some point, like, 10 years after theater school, I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, that's what it was. Yes, totally. Yeah, I was, I think I was like a probably handful in theater school because I was like, to deflect from whatever I was doing would always Mm. question these professors and be like, why are we doing this exercise? Like, what's the point of this? Like, how Mm. is this going to like make me good and like you know it's like well you're ha- you're gonna have to buy into it kaylee if you want it to do anything for you and i'm like this isn't working like why isn't yeah. this working <laughs> and then now i'm like yeah you really weren't buying into it well that's so. the that's the thing is i remember i remember like sometimes i think oh if i could go back knowing what i know now now i would also be a terrible student because i would fight back a lot more <laughs> Um, because uh, you know, theater school can be a terribly abusive place, mm-hmm. and it, again, I spent the entire three years of theater school in fear. But like, just knowing about how to just give in to some of it, to trust a process, to to just sort of like buy into it, mm-hmm. which at eighteen, like, I was too young to know any better. I was still worried about being cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. I hadn't given up on that dream yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, I don't know. It's tough uh, going to school when you're that, when you're that young. I, and I was like living in a, in dorm, like in res mm. in my first year. So there was like all kinds of amazing life drama that was mm-hmm. way more important. Like who's going to win the, like, Comp- the tower competition of who can mm. like you know, that stuff I really cared about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. All of these, all of these strange places that, that our, our, our priorities go. Yeah. I mean, we had, you know, in, in the school I was in because it was a conservatory program, mm. you know, we were part of the college and the college kept sending out these notices about like, it's pub night. And we would be like, well, I guess I'll, 
I, you know, I'm at theater school, so I don't get to go to pub night because mm. we're here until nine or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, and it sort of felt like we were at college, but really dedicated to this one aspect and we couldn't like right. participate in the tower building contest yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So we kind of missed out on, on that, but it was a whole different, different kind of ball game. What, what theater school did you go to? I went to the university of Alberta. And I just did the BA. I did not do the BFA. Mm. Yeah. Um, now you you ended up in in both England and then in Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, what could I ask? What took you to England, and then what took you to Quebec? Yeah, um, it's not that interesting of a story. How I wound up in England, I was uh, I found like discovered that there's these like working holiday visas you can get for European countries. And I was graduating university, had just dumped my like crappy boyfriend from high school um, of like five years. And I was like, I'm free. I'm going on my Europe trip of my dreams. Mm. Uh, there was a friend from theater school who I was going to go with. Uh, I wanted to get a visa for Germany because I took German in university. So I was like, this would be so cool. But she didn't speak any German. So we compromised. We decided to get these visas for England. Hmm. So that's, and then when I was in England, the the like easiest thing to do was to, to sub, right? Because you can kind of hmm. say, I'm not working today or I am working or you can kind of pick your schedule, right? So that, that, um, that was why England was just, that was the visa country that we both wanted to apply for. Hmm. Um, yeah. And then Quebec was, um, my husband's from Vancouver and I'm from Calgary. He didn't want to live in Calgary. Mm. I didn't really want to go to Vancouver because it's crazy expensive. <laughs> so, uh, so we compromised and went to Montreal, which seemed like this, you know, sure. of all the places in Canada where we wanted to live, that was the one we both were like, yes, let's do it. Let's give it a mm. go. Um, yeah, we were quite young when we got married we we're 24 and 26 so yeah. um <laughs> so you know we had all we, we were like what an amazing honeymoon to move mm. to montreal <laughs> forever sure <laughs> now did you guys did you guys speak french i speak french um uh my husband's mother is quebecois herself she's a real for real french woman from quebec that helps that um, helps yeah, yeah. So we we um, um, that's that was a situation we moved out there. I I like so lucked out getting this job at QDF, which is like mm. for the English side of things. So I was working mostly in English, which is mm-hmm. good because my French is it's Alberta French, isn't it? So oh, okay. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not it's not amazing. If I if I had retained any of my French, see. I made the mistake, like I learned very quickly that the French that they taught me in school was not Quebecois French. Mm-hmm. And the reason I knew that is because when I met people from Quebec and they 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 uh, they asked me a question and I thought I was being very polite by answering them in French. And I said, we. Oui. And they went, oh, we. Oui. And I was like, oh, shit, I've messed up somehow. Wrong. Wrong already. Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> right from the start. And then I learned it's wah. That's right. And yeah. then I learned they taught us everything wrong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. It's it. There's a lot of subtleties, too, that you like, I really think you just don't get until you till you go over there. Mm-hmm. All these little like 
and, and Montreal is such a like such a diverse city like there's yes. more there's like more languages being spoken in you know one neighborhood in Montreal than in the whole like rest mm-hmm. of the country I feel like mm-hmm. so you had like the accents there's so many different little tricky little nuances out there mm-hmm. yeah 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 but then eventually you found your way back to Calgary. So yeah. did you did you did you find some some work in Calgary? Was there something that that brought you from Montreal back to Calgary? Yeah, just um, there's a illness in my husband's family. Okay, so not like nothing exciting there, really. Nothing, <laughs> no, nothing good yeah. that brought you back to Calgary. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, sorry to hear that. Um, now, in terms of 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 the work that you're doing when when did you begin to to create your own theater um the first show i wrote was in 2012 hmm. um for a fringe festival i wrote it with my brother uh colin wolf and we um started thumbs up good work theater that at that mm-hmm. time which was sort of just meant to be like the name that we had to put on our fringe application (laughs) um went to saskatoon and edmonton with that show it was like um it was like both of us trying to make sense of our lives little vignettes of like um millennial anguish (laughs) because it was 2012 and so and we were just finishing university you know like i started university in 2007 so then then the economy was destroyed um Mm. and it was like you graduated you know like i don't think that's a unique experience in the world but that's it seemed you it seemed really unique and really important to us um and so that was what that show was about um and that was yeah yeah now was when you created this fringe show and you did it not in calgary you did it in edmonton and saskatoon Mm -hmm. um were those French festivals that you had initially had had targeted or are they the ones that you managed to get into? The second one. Yeah. We, I think we applied to the Calgary French, but it's quite small. There's, there's not very many spots. So, um, yeah, we, we just, I think we applied even to like all across the country. We applied to mm-hmm. a bunch and then got into those two. And so then that's where we went. Yeah, I remember I was I was at the Calgary Fringe uh, a number of years ago with a show, and uh, it was we thought it would be like a warm up to Edmonton. Now we'd done our show, our, mm. our, we'd done a couple of other festivals, but it was not quite the warm up to the Edmonton Fringe. We, we thought it was going to be <laughs> because it's so much smaller. Yeah. We went from from Winnipeg to Calgary, and it was like this. It was very it was two very different experiences, mm-hmm. and then to go into the Edmonton Fringe, which is a wild yeah. thing oh yeah um d- had you done much fringe theater before or, or or seen a lot of fringe theater before that no no not at all not a single thing i i i had some awareness of the the festival and what it what it was when i was kind of in university obviously but i came back to calgary every summer so i was never in edmonton to see mm. the like spectacle and then in calgary there there's no like grounds or anything you know no like so it's it, i w- would see it in like the newspaper but um no 
<laughs> no, is yeah, that <laughs> no? No, because Ed, Edmonton has like this area. Yeah, it's like like they block off the area, and Winnipeg is much the same. Mm-hmm. But like most other cities are like it's at a bunch of other theaters. Calgary's like that. Yeah, it's just like it's in a bunch of places, and uh, it's it, that sort of makes it hard to it like the experience of going to Fringe in Edmonton and like and Winnipeg because there is this this area that's like dedicated to it is very different from like going to Calgary because it's just like, you kind of almost have to stumble across it if you didn't know yeah where you were going. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and Calgary's so spread out and it's usually in like Inglewood is the area, which is kind of like a really sort of small, it's like, I don't know, it's maybe like five blocks long, this area. Mm. It, and it's kind of a low traffic, like, quiet older neighborhood so you don't really go there unless you're like going there you know what i mean like yeah. the the fringe grounds in edmonton are like smack dab in like the middle of the party area yes. <laughs> right well, hearing from people who are from edmonton about how you know yes now that's the party area but like when they started the fringe there it was like this run down nobody would go there area mm-hmm. it's kind of like Oh, okay. So if you do something big with theater, you could like revitalize a whole neighborhood. Interesting. At a certain time. <laughs> I I I love a a grounds, a fringe. I mean, I'm from from Calgary, aren't I? So Stampede Grounds. I'm mm-hmm. been I've been training for grounds my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. <laughs> um as as you work uh, uh, on on theater and with stuff that you're working on now, like with this whole like uh, uh, magnetosphere, 1940s newsroom sort of thing, uh, what is your? Can you describe what your writing process looks like, or is it is it like one of those like all over the map kind of things? Um, it's changed a lot in the last year, as has you know most things for most people. Um, Pre pandemic. Like when we came back to Calgary, I just sort of had to take whatever job I could get because we came back, you know, kind of in a hurry. I was cleaning houses and then I was working retail. And so I was just writing whenever I like had to. So like deadline for this proposal is whatever, or um, we have our first read in one week. So yeah, you're going to finish it because I just found it like damn near impossible to work like this cleaning job which is really physically demanding and then retail which is like soul sucking yes <laughs> to then like come home and be like okay put yourself in like a beautiful vulnerable like zen position to like channel you know what you're ever you're trying to say about humanity in this play it mm. like it was like no what i need is like garbage television and garbage food and for no you know like (laughs) just to like and then I'm going to sleep um so I really didn't have a very like I didn't have a practice really it was like okay we managed to get a grant um I'm taking time off from work to do this play so um I guess I have to write it Hmm. (laughs) Like, like it's not that and I want to you know I applied for the grant I have people around me who I have hired to do this stuff and who like are committed to this project. So it's like, yeah, you, you got to do it like for these, for the good of what we're all trying to accomplish here. And regardless of how tired you are or whatever. um, And it, 
since I left retail and have been starting freelancing, like that, it's totally changed. Um, and it would take me a long, long time to take me three years to write 60 pages. Like, hmm. um, I could write if I was in a festival and it was like a 10 minute piece or whatever, I could probably write, write that. But like anything bigger than that would take me forever. Um, so now, now it's like, I feel like, they like let me out of my cage, man. I like, <laughs> like I, I can totally decide the stuff for myself. And, and I'm, I have time to, for me, I'm a researcher. I'm like a reader. I got to find and identify for myself each inspirational thing. Um, like, and they take different forms. So I have to really always be on the lookout and I have to go down the rabbit hole to find mm what I'm, what I, what really gets me going. And then I, then I can take that. And then I had marinate. I'm like cooking myself in the bathtub. I got like carrots and potatoes in there and I'm <laughs> marinating yeah. and thinking. And then usually what happens is like, I can think of, if I can picture a character with, with, what I determine to be an appropriate amount of clarity, then I can start writing. I usually mm. will know sort of what the plot is, what I'm trying to go for uh, in terms of story beats and that sort of thing. But I can't really get into the groove until I figure out who the, who the people are, who are, mm. who are in the story. Mm. Um, yeah. I can't help but think about uh, your, your description of, of, of working retail and working these, these jobs and, and, and just coming home and not having really the 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 strength to write that that after the soul sucking experience of working in say a retail job it's so hard and and a lot of people with their subsistence jobs they have this too is like you finish that how do you make yourself be a creative person after a day of karen's yelling at you mm -hmm for whatever reason um did you were you at any point able to to write while doing the or like to to really feel like it flowed during those the the retail years or is it only like once you've been able to leave that behind that that it's really it's really been like a a, a real flow as far as the writing goes i i think i would sometimes get really lucky when i was writing when I was in retail or I would have, uh, if I could get a day, like if I had a day off and I had a good day off where something happened to make me happy, <laughs> then I could, I could ride that wave. There was definitely some, sometimes there are, when I was riding the board again, crow where I felt like it came really quickly and, um, and it all sort of fit. And which is, which is awesome because I didn't have like a ton of, time to edit but um but then sometimes it was just like get it out girl like get it mm. on the damn page like <laughs> someone's mm. got to say something next because <laughs> um and then uh now that i'm now that i'm doing my own thing it's it takes a, a lot away a lot of the pressure i also found it mm. hard to be like you have one day to write so if you don't get any writing done then you've wasted 
your chance. That's so much pressure to mm-hmm. put on any kind of writing. I sometimes found myself um, and still do sometimes where it's like, okay, it's a busy day, but I have an hour that I could write in. And it's like an hour, but then like, what if what I write in that hour is no good or mm-hmm. I can't come up with anything? Like that's a wasted hour. And then I end up playing a video game instead <laughs> yeah. or whatever, you know, because sometimes it feels like you just – like it's not worth the time. Yeah. It takes me at least an hour to really get into a groove if I'm getting into a groove. Mm. I've I've enjoyed like the, the sometimes when I've been able to to take myself away from home and go away mm-hmm. like for a weekend with and like then it's like I've done nothing like the all of my familiar everything is 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 gone and I can just sit and and write and then you you have that that hour of like wasted time. And then suddenly the muses take over or whatever. And Mm -hmm. you write this really good stuff because none of your usual distractions are there and you've got no choice, but to write. Yeah. Yeah. The pre-retail, I felt like I was just like throwing darts at a dartboard to see like what was going to make the stars align to make this work. Whereas Mm. like now I feel like I have a lot more control over it. Mm. Nice. Now you've sort of alluded to the the pre-pandemic times. Um, were you working on anything at the time when you know a year ago when everything stops that that had to be put on hold, or or, or what was that that period of time like for you? Uh, yeah, I was working. I was working retail when it all when it all shut down, and um, um, I was um, the big thing I was working on was I was in the, a playwrights unit with Chromatic Theater. Um, which was the first playwrights unit I ever applied for. And Hmm. it was my first experience in a playwrights unit. So I was, um, I I was, and I was super into it. Like I I love talking to writers about writing. I think it's, it's so juicy. Like, so there's, I just get so much from it. Um, And I was working on a, musical about a landlord um (laughs) and so like we had plans to do like a a workshop read like a stage read and we were gonna get like we're gonna get a choreographer to choreograph the dance number like a dance number for for Mm. the you know um and we ended up shifting it to online later i mean we Mm. we were supposed to present in april um or may and then we thought we'll push it to september and we'll We'll see if it's all over by then. Oh yeah. my yeah. God. I remember good. I remember those days. Surely by the fall this will all be over. Uh yeah. yeah. And yeah. And so then when the fall came, we were like, we gotta just we gotta just do it. We gotta just do it yeah. online. Um and, and then that was I don't know. I, I I know everyone's I don't know. Okay. I'm just gonna say it. I like the online stuff. I'm not tired of it yet. And um I think it's awesome and great. <laughs> you know, I don't think that's a bad thing to say. Now, I, I, um, as a, not a counter that, but like I work in an industry where I spend a lot of time in online meetings. Mm. And so when I, I find it difficult to go from this, this Zoom meeting is, is work, but this Zoom meeting is entertainment. It's, it can be hard to make yes. that switch. Um, but 
I am fascinated by the innovations that people have made mm-hmm. and the 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 things that people who I swear a year and two months ago were saying, I could never do anything technical. Mm-hmm. I'm just a theater person, have like really sort of become innovators as far as as far as the theatrical stuff goes and doing it online. Absolutely. I, I think it, the whole industry became like 20% more accessible when we switched over. There's well, tons more captioning, yeah. like uh, financial, bar- like a lot of people were doing their online stuff for free, like just sign yeah. up, like, um, you know, no one's having to call a theater and ask about like elevators or ramps or stairs, you know what I mean? Mm. So um, I, I think, um, I don't know. It's good and bad, I suppose. But <laughs> I really hope, and this is sort of like a thing that I, 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 I sort of cross my fingers and hope that this is what we can keep, is that when theaters reopen, that a lot that theaters consider wiring up for cameras and selling a like an internet ticket mm-hmm. to keep it ac- mm-hmm. accessible. And also to open up our very siloed theater worlds. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in Toronto, you're in Calgary. Unless I travel to Calgary, I can't see what you're doing. But what if I could? Yeah. What if I could I could buy a digital ticket and I could watch it? That's not going to prevent an audience from wanting to be in the room because how often do we buy an album or buy it, like, you know, listen to, to music online or whatever and then we want to see that act live. Right. And yeah. so it can be an augmentation and keep things accessible, but op- and also open up the entire world of theater to an audience that can't necessarily travel to see it. Totally. I think, um, I mean, I think, um, I think we owe it to all of our essential workers over the past year to like really connect with these communities and, and make them a prior, like a number one target audience. I, I think mm-hmm. they've been left behind by our industry for a long time. I know when I was mm-hmm. working retail and cleaning, uh, my coworkers had no concept of theater uh, beyond um, like dinner theater. And yeah. um, there's a reason for that. And the reason isn't that they're too stupid or that they, <laughs> they just don't get it. Like there's, we got to dig a little harder and find out why, you know, like the retail industry is one of the biggest industries in the country. And why don't these people choose to come to theater? Is it like a question that I think really needs to be answered? And I think a lot of people will maybe not like the answers, but I think, you know, we, like I said, I think we really owe it to these people that like keep our economy going literally to mm. like make their inclusion a priority. And then that that would include like <laughs> essential workers are like the most diverse group of people. Um, you would be covering like we would be bringing so many new people in. Like it's something that I really think about a lot mm. with our industries. Like why don't we make our audiences from these groups from specifically from people who work the least, the lowest paying jobs. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a, that is a huge question. And it's sort of, I think that if we were to examine that more closely and how we could bring them in, whether it's a digital ticket or maybe our prices are too high. I mean, when people think about when, when a lot of people 
think about the theater, they think about how expensive it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm working a minimum, a minimum wage job, I can't afford to see a big show at the, the, the biggest theater mm-hmm. in town. And I think that's all there is. Yeah. A lot of times they don't know about the indie stuff because we're not marketing to them. Oh yeah. And, it, and if we are like, do they even know how to get to our venue? It's, it's rife, isn't it? Like there's, yeah. there's that one question spawns 1 million other questions. I think like, um, I think it's all those things. I think also, um, I, I just think, uh, this is kind of unrelated, I guess, but I, when I started playing in a punk band in Montreal, I, I was not involved in that scene really before. I didn't really, I wasn't in music. I was like the theater person. So I was in theater. Um, growing up and all that. Then when I started playing these shows and we were playing like random, like kids, college kids basements and like weird, like abandoned (laughs) gyms and stuff, (laughs) you know, there would be like a group of like 15, like poor, queer, like really cool people that I had never seen out of play ever in my life would show up to these punk shows. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh my God, like these are, these are the people that I want to be doing theater for. Like I, yeah. I, I, I want to find ways to make this group feel like they can come on down. And yeah. we, I don't know. I, I've tried to keep that in mind and I feel like I've had, you know, varying amounts of success doing that. There's a lot like, um, there's a lot of can do and a lot of can't. And, and um, I don't know. I just found that whole revelation of the underground, like was really, really important to my theater practice. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know if, 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 if things are the same in Calgary, but in, 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 in Toronto, we do a lot of hand wringing about where's our audience going. Right. Instead of like, you know, looking at like, where's our new audience and where can our new audience come from? Mm. You know, we sort of look at it as, oh, there's not much we can do about it, but oh gosh, where's the audience going? And I think, you know, we need to look at at at, at our new audience and try to figure out how do we find them? How do we let them know that we're here? How do we bring them in? And how do we make it as easy as possible for them to watch what we're doing? And And how do we make it interesting for them to yeah. watch? Because I think that's part of it too. Is like the, you know, people, my coworkers would be like, "Well, like, why would I want to watch like a play about like some old dead British king?" And yes. I'm like, "That's a great point. That's <laughs> it is an excellent point. It's an excellent point. It's also you know, there's all kinds of like barriers in terms of like, you know, what is the play that we're presenting, and why are we doing these old dead white guys, and why aren't we doing things that are actually speaking to to more people." I know royalties and all that stuff, but that's a poor excuse for not fostering new new audiences and new new playwrights and new visions, you know? Yeah, definitely. Hey, did did you have Dear Johnny Deer come out there or was that just a prairie thing? <laughs> I think it might be a prairie okay. thing. Okay. I don't that that show does not sound familiar to me at all. Oh, okay, because it played at every regional theater like <laughs> in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. And that that kind of like like curatorial choice baffled me also because I was like, is this an attempt to get the farmers to come? 
It's a little <laughs> bit cynical. Now, right. I, 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 I've, I've known people who grew up on farms, and they're like, there is more to farming than John Deere. Right. And you can just, like, bring it up, and they will be so pissed off. So the idea of, of a show with that title being like, well, this will bring the farmers out <laughs> just sounds sort of like this cynical choice where totally. you didn't actually do your research. Uh, it makes me laugh. <laughs> and like I, seeing the posters around town i would just be mm. i was just like okay <laughs> no, like, okay well i wish you all the luck in the world with that yeah, yeah. <laughs> now just as we as we start to draw to a close um one of the the questions that i've been asking for the last year for everybody just to end off mm. is about joy um, because there have been moments for all of us in the last year and there will be uh, going forward where we could really use some. So lately, what has been the thing or things that's been giving you the most joy? Okay. Um, my cat, Frank, didn't used to really love me all that much. Now that I am home every day, he is smitten like a kitten. He loves me. <laughs> that brings me joy every day. Mm. I have in this pandemic taken up my piano practice after about maybe six or seven years of not playing piano. Mm. That has been immensely rewarding. Um, I love it because I struggle with it every mm. day and I am getting better. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> and... <laughs> I am not sharing it with anyone. Like mm. I, I am not, I'm not, I, I posted, I posted maybe one video of me playing piano on Instagram this whole time. Okay. Uh, so like, I'm trying to keep it just, just for me, not something I'm trying to extract from myself where mm. like, and if I don't get any better than where I am now, that's cool. I'm buying uh, sheet music that I, I want to play for myself, not, mm for any other reason that brings me immense joy um bird watching always bird watching is so important i was gifted a pair of binoculars at the start of the pandemic from oh. my grandparents and i've been a birder for a long time but these these binoculars sit next to me on my desk all the time and i'd say those are the, those those things and then my beautiful husband who i live with who mm. um lets me just do whatever I want. And he, he cooks all the food. So that's awesome. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I could go on, but I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to, um, I don't want to, I don't want to go on. No, no. Save some of that stuff for yourself, yeah. but thank you for sharing those, those things that bring you joy. And, and thank you for, for this conversation. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. I've never been on a podcast before. 